0: Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those... To whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. I remember several years ago there was a lady pastor up in the Falls that submitted an, an article into the Daily Journal in the newspaper. And basically, I don't remember if she actually wrote it or she uh, kind of passed it on from somewhere else. But basically, the article said that within the Bible, you find rape, incest, polygamy, homosexuality. So this whole notion of biblical marriage is a misnomer. Well, in the article and in her opinion, this lady makes a grave mistake of thinking that everything that the Bible describes, it also prescribes. She is right that you do find all those things in the Bible. But it's different if you describe an event, than if you prescribe a value. Uh, You can see this even in your own language. I'm sure that every one of you in here at times have talked about some of the same things. You've talked about sexual immorality. You've talked about rape when you've heard about it happening in a case or something like that. You've talked about murder. You've talked about a lot of different things, but it by no means means that you endorse those same things, does it? Just because you've had a conversation that has talked about a murder, does that mean you endorse murder? Absolutely not. And that's what we find within the Bible. We find that God is very honest in the details of human life. And He describes a lot of ugly things and sinful things that take place in this world. But that does not mean that He endorses those things. Just because He lists that people had more than one wife does not mean that He approves of them having more than one wife. In David's family where one of his sons raped his sister, God does not approve of that either. But He described it as He told us what happened, but He in no way endorses it. Well, that's where this lady, I think, and whoever wrote the article was mixed up. They tried to look at all the things that are included in the Bible, but ignored the fact that a lot of those things that she mentioned were severely judged in the Bible. And so God made very clear those things that He did not endorse, and the things in which He did. As we come to this passage this morning, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's putting forth biblical marriage. He's stating in a conversation where He's being attacked, in fact, the motives of the Pharisees is probably to get Him in similar trouble that John the Baptist got into. And so they ask Him out of the blue this question about... Marriage and divorce. And the question is put this way. It says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" You see, they got a real opportunity to put Jesus in a hard place here, because within Israel, you had uh, opinions about marriage and divorce that from one end of the spectrum to the other. On one end of the spectrum, you had the people from Qumran. The Qumran community, they didn't acknowledge any circumstance that divorce was okay in or tolerable. And on the other hand, you had the camp that would have been the Pharisees. The Pharisees took a very liberal view of divorce. So they're kind of putting Jesus in this place where he's not going to make everybody happy. No matter where he stands, he's going to offend somebody. Well, the Pharisees looked at it very liberally. They said that you could divorce your wife for any cause, real or imagined they could divorce a wife for anything from actually literally burning the dinner or salting the food too much. They could divorce a wife for a roving eye. Not the wife's roving eye necessarily, but even the husband's. Divorce was almost endorsed to the same level marriage was. In a quote from one of the rabbis back in the day in the Talmud, it says, A bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. Another rabbi said this, If a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce her. We see that reflected even in their question of Jesus. Because when they get to a point in the conversation where they're going to say to Jesus, well, why did Moses command us to divorce? And Jesus will say, Moses didn't command you to divorce. What he did was he allowed divorce. Big difference between commanding and allowing. But the Pharisees and their notion were, they were in the commanding stage. You're actually doing a good thing by going through this divorce. And Jesus makes it clear here that God does not ordain divorce. God joins together. It's man that separates. Not to say, and as we see as we get through a passage, there are places where divorce is an option. But as we look at Matthew chapter 5, and verse 31 and 32, we see that Jesus has no problem standing against the tide. He has no problem standing against the misconceptions of the day and speaking boldly the truth of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Bible's pretty clear. Divorce is either the result of adultery or it results in adultery. God recognizes divorce in the case of adultery, in the case of sexual immorality. But divorce that happens outside of sexual immorality then leads... To adultery if it was not the cause of it. Because when that person leaves and is united to somebody else, God does not recognize that that divorce was legitimate. And so that is a commission of adultery to enter into a relationship with somebody else having not a legitimate grounds for divorce in your own case. So as we look through this, Jesus, he's got people that are saying they don't accept divorce in any circumstances. And he's got people that accept divorce under every circumstances. And Jesus is very happy to stand right on the truth of God and let the chips fall where they may. I was involved in a panel discussion a few years ago down in Yoda. Mark's church had put it on, and it was on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And there was a few of us pastors on the panel, and we were meeting with their deacon board, and we were discussing this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. As we did, I remember one of the deacons, he, was, he would have been kind of the Qumran camp. He didn't want to acknowledge divorce At all. We can't endorse it at all. There's no place for it. I was talking to him about that, and he just made this statement. He said, I just believe in a strong view of marriage. And I said to him, The strongest view of marriage is the view that is the most consistent. With the Word of God. So if the Word of God acknowledges divorce in some instances, then I want to acknowledge divorce in some instances. If the Word of God condemns divorce, then I want to condemn divorce. Not that I have that authority, but I want to proclaim God's condemnation of it. And no matter what subject you're talking about, the strongest position is to be right where the Bible is. Just by saying I condemn all divorce doesn't necessarily give you the strongest position on marriage. Because it may not be the most accurate with what God intended it to be. These Pharisees, the religious leaders, they should have known better. Back in the book of Malachi, they were corrected and judged because of their relationships the husbands had with the wives. Malachi chapter 2 Verses 13 through 16, it says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they were crying before the altar of God, saying, We're offering these sacrifices, and God's not responding. He's not accepting our, our sacrifices. And God's about to tell them the reason. He says, This is why. He said, "'But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking?' says tells us that we need to live with one another at peace with one another unity in that husband wife relationship so that our prayers will be heard otherwise God ain't listening to us. God is intimately concerned with the relationship between the husband and the wife and he protects that. And why? Because he's a covenant making God. Notice earlier in that passage it says that he refers to as a wife by covenant. And God said that when you entered that covenant, that God was involved and made them one. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That God has joined them together. And He's not even limiting it. He's not limiting it to, to Christian marriage or Jewish marriage. or He's limiting it to human marriage. And He's saying when one man and a woman unite, God unites them, brings them together as one. It was built into His creation, the very fabric of His creation. And that happens by doing what? Making a covenant. You know, every once in a while I hear somebody say, maybe somebody that's living together or something like that, and they say, well, we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. Just living together, just being involved sexually does not make you married. Now, sexuality is the most intimate picture of what happens within our marriage. The two people become one. They get so meshed together that you don't know where one starts and the other stops. It's a beautiful picture of what is taking place within the souls of these two people in their marriage. But it does not in itself constitute a marriage. In fact, the Bible calls it by different names. If it's sex outside of the marriage of somebody that is married, it's adultery. If it's any other sex outside of marriage some people that are not married, then it's fornication or it's sexual immorality. So in other words, if we don't make this covenant that he means here, your wife by covenant, where we enter into a legally binding promise with that other person then we're actually adulterers in God's sight and fornicators or sexual immorality in God's sight. Not married. It's not until we enter that marriage covenant that God says, I knit you together. The two become one. I'm joining that together. Well, as we look at this idea of biblical marriage, let's first point out just a couple guiding principles that we see in Jesus' instruction to them right off the bat. The first guiding principle is that God's Word is our authority. Notice, notice Jesus' response. They ask Him, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any and every reason? And Jesus' first response is, haven't you read? And then He's going to quote to them from the book of Genesis. So from the Word of God. So Jesus, as the authority for what is marriage, as the authority for what should happen with divorce, is the Word of God. There becomes a question. In, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in verse 1, and this is the, the passage that I believe the Pharisees are alluding to when they ask Jesus, why did Moses command us to get divorced? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then it's going to go on to say, And then she marries somebody else, and then that guy divorces her. She's not allowed to go back to the first guy. But in the midst of that, here's the question. It says if the husband has found some indecency in her, what is it referring to? Well, it could be referring to adultery, but probably not because adultery was punishable by death in Israel. And so she would be put to death if she was found in adultery, and then he's not married to her anymore because of death, and so it wouldn't be an issue. So this indecency, and that's where the rabbis got going crazy. What is this indecency? The more conservative one said it must have been something else sexual but not as far as adultery. It had to be something serious. And others said she just it just didn't please him in some way. And that's where you get into the whole doing you know, burning the dinner and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus says, Let me take you to another passage. So they're asking him a question, I believe, about Deuteronomy 24.1. What legitimizes divorce? Jesus says, you know what, if you want a good understanding of marriage, if you want a good understanding of divorce, let's go back to the beginning where it was created, where marriage was created. And he takes him back to Genesis. And in Genesis, we find in chapter 1, and then Jesus quotes from chapter 2, verse 27. But in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, Then when we get up into chapter 2, it says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is the passage that Jesus quotes so as we look at this, we've recognized that God's Word is our authority. And then our other guiding principle is that God's creation is our model for biblical marriage. Now, within this creation account, we see several We see several things. We see, first of all, that it was intentional. God's creation of marriage and of people was intentional. God was purposely creating them in His own image. And that together man and woman joined together make up the image of God. Not only was it intentional, it was purposeful. He ordered them in, a, in a, a relationship and in an order within the home and within the world. And they were to exercise dominion over the world. And not only that, they were to be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. And it's this amazing thing because we see Adam, we see one flesh in Adam. And then Adam's rib is taken out of him. So he is one and a rib is taken out of him and he's made two, Adam and Eve he forms woman out of Adam. So it's still out of one flesh that God then makes two for the purpose of being joined back into one. It's astounding. So he takes one flesh in Adam, pulls out his rib, makes a second. So there's two all for the purpose of reuniting in one. And there we start to get to see the image of God as we have the Father, the Son, and then going forth from both of them as the Holy Spirit and the result of Adam and Eve, their being one is a, is a tremendous unity that they get to participate in. That unity is partially expressed in physical intimacy, which is an awesome picture of it. And then the result of that physical Im- intimacy is 27 chromosomes from the mom and 27 chromosomes from the dad. And what do you have? One new life. It's incredible. It's so purposeful. And God says... Jesus says, this, this is it. This, we look at the creation and God making this. The one becomes two, which becomes one, which creates another life, who then finds another, and the two become one and creates another life, who then finds another, and the two become one. And he says, this is, this is marriage. This is what God intended. This is biblical marriage. The Pharisees were ripping it to shreds, but it didn't mean there, there wasn't one. Well, the last thing that we see about biblical marriage, we actually see by Jesus is going back to it. And that is that it is unchanging. It's not changing. These are not old values or old principles. These these are God's principles. They're timeless principles. In fact, when when we look at Jesus here, Jesus several thousand years later, after the creation, after the institution of marriage. And somebody asked Jesus about marriage. And where does he go all the way back to the Garden of Eden? Right to the beginning. Several thousand years hasn't changed marriage one iota in God's mind. God's opinion. It is what He wants it to be. And when we make it anything else, we're deviant. We're destructive. You know, so many times in our day, they say, well, if you look back in that culture, because of the culture, these things have changed, and this thing's changed. Anything that God anchors into creation is unchanging. Because creation doesn't change. It was a historical event. The purposes that God had that day, He still has. Cultures can go by God's Word, or cultures can turn their back on God's Word to their own detriment. But it's God's truth, which is solid. You know, we see it in the Apostle Paul as well. The Apostle Paul is teaching about marriage and actually how marriage is an illustration of the relationship with Christ and His church in Ephesians chapter 5. And you know what he does in Ephesians chapter 5? He goes all the way back to Genesis, just like Jesus did. He goes right back to the beginning. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus corrects them. Notice He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And right before that, He makes it clear to them. He's saying, this is something you're doing, not God. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God joins. Man separates. And so Jesus is making it very, very clear to them. Now, with those principles in mind then, with our authority firmly established underneath us and the biblical model clearly before us, let's then move on and see the four characteristics of biblical marriage that Jesus lists in this passage. The first one, As we see the pattern of biblical marriage, Jesus starts out very simply. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? God made two kinds of people, male and female. And that's what participates in marriage. To say that that there is no biblical or traditional view of marriage is is outside of Jesus' thinking, I'll tell you that. I find it astounding today. We're getting a long list of letters of people that we're supposed to recognize these days. And what is it based on? Well, we have one thing that's based on biology and based on the Word of God, and then we have something else that is based on feelings. Here's the logic. The logic says, I'm a boy. I'm biologically a boy. It's been easy to tell since the moment I came out of the womb, even beforehand in ultrasound. But I feel like I'm a girl. first question should probably be, how do you you know, since you're not one? I think there's a lot more to being a girl than what you're feeling. But let's just assume that part, okay? When somebody says, I... Obviously, I have this biological makeup that says I'm a boy, but I have feelings like I'm a girl. Why do we assume the biology needs to change? Maybe it's the feelings that need to change. Maybe we should give, uh, instead of giving estrogen to people, give testosterone to the same individuals. Bolster that part of them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not unsympathetic to anybody that's having a struggle. And would be glad to try to walk through and help in any way that I can somebody that's having a struggle with their identity or with an issue like this. I'm not unsympathetic. But I recognize that the Word of God has a standard, and God is telling us how He created us. So when somebody else tells me God made them that way, I say, I'm not according to Him. Jesus said God made them male and female, and that's what comes together in a marriage. That is the pattern of biblical marriage. Well, not only do we see the pattern of biblical marriage, but we also see the priority of biblical marriage. It says, therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Up until that point in your life, your father and your mother are the crucial relationship in your life. They're the relationship that has been the the most meaningful, the most um, connected. Now, you're not one flesh with your mom and dad, but you are the product of their one flesh relationship. But you're you're the, the singleness that came out of their unity, you know. And when we're when our kids are little, we feel very possessive of them. It's not till they're teenagers we're ready to give them away. But, but we feel very possessive of them when they're when they're little, and we're so protective, and we're we're evaluating everything, and we're thinking about uh, what kind of TV shows we want them to watch, what kind of language we're willing to let them hear, or uh, what kind of things are going to participate in how old do they have to be when they're not squeezing the finger across crossing the parking lot to get into the store anymore uh, all these different things we go through they're just they're just ours but you know what god says there's a point where they're not yours anymore they're going to they're going to leave you not that there's not still a relationship there there is but he says it's time for a man to leave his father and mother and to cleave or cling to his wife hold her fast hold her tight and the two Become one. So we see the priority of this relationship. It trumps everything else. It trumps the relationship that you had with your parents, which has been the most, the most solid, the deepest, the most enduring relationship you've had in your life up to that point. This, Your relationship with your parents compared to this looks like leaving them. It looks like setting them aside. That's how much the focus is here now on this relationship with this person you'll be one with. So we see a priority in biblical marriage. Not only we see a priority of biblical marriage, we also see the power of biblical marriage. The two shall become one. That's an amazing thing. Marriage takes some effort. There's no doubt about it. You know what marriage is? I think marriage is the place where God tries to strip the selfishness out of you more than any other place in the world. It's the place where you are really put to the test. You've got to learn how to put somebody else above yourself. Learn how to sacrifice selfish desires and, and needs and be willing to lay those at the altar of, of being able to serve this other person and to love them more, to put them first. That's what marriage is. And in Christ, we can do it. We follow His example. We can do it. The Bible says, and the two shall be made one flesh. It's a, you know, it's a mystical thing. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I think it's exactly why sexual immorality, sexual sins are so heinous, are so wicked. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about sinning sexually. And it says that every other sin that we get involved in is outside of our body. But it says to the person that sins sexually, you sin against your own body. You know, I don't even think we completely understand what that means. There's something, when we sin sexually, it affects us on a deeper level than any other sin that we commit. And I think it's because. Sexuality is supposed to be an expression of and an enjoyment of the unity that these two people feel that shuts everybody else out and that these two people experience together. It's a knittedness of soul. It's a it's a singleness of personhood. Sexual morality is a cheap imitation. It's what Satan tries to lure us into. It's a beautiful expression in God's framework. It's cheap outside of it. And it's kind of like when you put down the subfloor on a construction site, you put glue on top of all the joists, And you drop the plywood into the glue and then you fasten it in place. And I always kind of put my left foot right up close to the nail gun while I'm nailing so my weight is on that plywood, squishing it into the glue as it nails against that joist so it's all firmly, tightly nailed. Well, if you have to pull up a section of that later, you know what happens? You go through and you pull all the nails and the fasteners, but the glue's still got it. And when you pry up a chunk of that plywood, you know what happens? In some places, some of the plywood is left on the joists. And in some places, some of the joist is left on the plywood. You can't. It doesn't just separate back to what it was. When we enter a biblical marriage, we get united. And Malachi said God was uniting them in spirit. Jesus said God is joining you together. It's part of His creative purpose in your life. And He's joining you together. And for you to, to take that apart doesn't happen pretty Part of you remain stuck to each other. You're, you, can't, it's, you can't just dissolve that one fleshness. And then lastly, we see the perpetuation of biblical marriage. In other words, how long is it to go on? And it goes on for our entire life. They did ask the question. They said, why did Moses command divorce? Jesus says Moses didn't command divorce. He allowed it. And if you look at the context in which divorce was allowed in, I think that divorce has a purpose, and its purpose is to protect Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your heart. Well, what does that mean? I think it means that because of the hardness of people's hearts, a man will lose interest in his wife. A wife will lose interest in in her husband. It happens. In fact, our society is about a 50% divorce rate and has been for a long time. Mankind's heart, the, the person that he would pledge his life for, would lay down his life for, may not stay that way forever. Does that mean Jesus is condoning this? No, absolutely not. But you see, what would happen then is if you look back, especially in Israel society, if a man got tired of his wife and cast her off, what happens to her? It's not like the land of opportunity you live in. Women didn't just go out and get jobs. They became beggars. They went out and picked up the scraps in the field or they became prostitutes. That was about it for their opportunity. And so what did Moses do? He said, because of your guy's hardness of heart and you will cast aside your wife you don't just cast her aside. You give her a certificate of divorce so she can marry somebody else. Otherwise, she's destitute. Jesus said Moses didn't command divorce. He allowed it. And why did he allow it? I think it was an act of grace. It was an act of grace. He allowed it so that that, those women would not be left destitute. The apostles then, they hear Jesus' teaching on this and they say, you know what? It's better not to get married at all. Let's Don't get married. And Jesus' answer to that is not everybody can accept that. In verse 11 it says, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, for only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been born so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So the point that Jesus is making is this. He says not everybody can receive that. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to it as a gift, just like Christ alludes to it here. He's saying there's eunuchs. In other words, people that live a celibate lifestyle. No sexuality involved in their life. He says there are people that are eunuchs from birth. Some people because of maybe a birth defect or or for one reason or another the temptation towards sexual desire is just not all that strong. They are able to live a celibate lifestyle and they do so happily without strong temptation. And they can live faithful to God. He says so there are those that are that way from birth and they can do it. But then there's other people That are made that way by men. Now what this is referring to is, uh, kinda like if you think of the king's harems and stuff. The the kings would often have harems of wives and they would put people in charge of those harems of wives to oversee those wives. But to make sure that there was not any infidelity on the part of their servants that were in charge of the wives, they would mutilate their servants so that they no longer had that ability or desire. And then Jesus said, some are made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. What's he referring to? He's referring to people like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 argues, he says, I think you're happier if you're like I am. He says, I don't have a wife and I'm not looking for a wife. Because I can focus completely on God's will in my life, whereas if I have a wife, I have to focus on her needs and not just fulfilling the will of God for me personally. And Paul was also a hunted, a persecuted man. He's like, in light of the present circumstances, I think it's better if people remain single. But he said not everybody can do that. In fact, that's what this passage is. He says, now as I can, a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, when I think of, of this passage, I think of, I th- I think of Lambert. And I asked Lambert, I said, can I share your testimony a little bit? And he said, if it helps anybody, share away. Lambert went through a divorce years ago, and he watched as what was happening to his kids as he went through this divorce. He just thought, my kids are going through enough. They don't need anything else on their plate. And so he decided, at least for a time, not pursuing relationships, not looking for a wife, not looking for another marriage. And he just set that side apart. And he's just lived faithful to God. And he just did made this decision based upon the impact that it would have on his children and I think that's that's exactly what he's talking about here people can some people can make that decision and live that out faithfully in honor to God and for a for a noble purpose and fulfill that in your life but both Jesus and the Apostle Paul say you know what not everybody can do that you're better in fact, the Apostle Paul puts at the end, he says, You're better off to marry than to burn with passion. If the way God has created you and the desires that are within you, if you if you can't just set that aside and, and overcome it, then you need to marry. But that is the other option, marriage. Not to express that in any other in any other way. But as we look at this and we look at this idea of biblical marriage, then what well, Jesus does leave one loophole. He says, If there's an instance of sexual morality. In fact, the Bible I believe leaves two loopholes for where divorce is permissible. One is where there's sexual morality. When that is such sexuality is such an intimate thing between the husband and the wife that when that is violated that's cause to dismantle the relationship. That is cause for divorce. And so Jesus recognizes that. Now this is also an act of grace when you think about it. Because in the Old Testament, remember adultery, the punishment for that was death. But we do not find record that it was consistently carried out. Look at David. David committed adultery. He didn't get put to death. Lots of people in the Old Testament, it appears, committed adultery, but were not put to death for it. And so God, at at times, people were dealt with in grace and mercy. Rather than carrying out the death penalty, they were allowed to continue to live. But now stop and think about that. If this man commits adultery against his wife, and then now he's not going to be put to death, which means she, the marriage is still intact and she's not free to go and marry somebody else. Then where's she left? And I think that's why divorce was allowed for that situation. Because otherwise, if you're, if you're going to allow this guy to be unfaithful to his wife and continue to living so she's still bound to him, then she's really kind of condemned to a life of loneliness and isolation. But Jesus says in that case, She's free to go and to remarry. The only other instance or the loophole, if you want to look at it that way, that, that God gives us is in First in Corinthians chapter 7. Um, it says if a believer is married to an unbeliever, the believer should stay in the relationship. But that if the unbeliever does not wish to stay in the relationship, then the believer can be divorced from that person. And the Bible says that we're not in bondage. We're not enslaved to that relationship at that time so those two as we look at as we look at this biblical idea of marriage marriage is to be esteemed so highly it's right in the fabric of God's creation it's a, a the biblical model that he gives us it's under the authority of God's word it's how he intended marriage to be is these these two people coming together to form such a union that they from them spawns life for one but these two people become one in their relationship with one another. We see the pattern of it. We see the priority of it that becomes the most exclusive and the most powerful relationship in our life. We see the perpetuation of it that is to be for life. And we see God's perfect handiwork. This is no ancient value that is passing away. This isn't something from a previous or a distant culture. This is something that is woven right into the fabric of our creation. This is marriage as God intended it to be.